So far this year on Sunday mornings, we've been mostly following the journey of the Israelites from Egypt through the wilderness. Today we start a shorter journey with Jesus as he walks the last few weeks of his life. Today we're going to think particularly of the danger of being all show and no substance. So as I said at the beginning, today many churches call Passion Sunday. It marks the start of the two-week build-up to the greatest day in the church's year, which is not, of course, Christmas Day, but Easter Day, Resurrection Day. But before we come to that great day of celebration, there are the harrowing and painful, difficult events that take place before. St. Paul wrote to the Philippians that he wanted to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, to which we say, Amen to that. But that is not all he said. The full sentence is this, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and to share in his sufferings by becoming like him in his death. Well, that second part we find not so easy, do we? So over these next two weeks, let us not be so eager to celebrate the glorious resurrection of our Lord Jesus from the dead that we ignore or gloss over the words and events that lead up to that day. And so we start with these two challenging, sobering stories. William Barclay, the Bible commentator, uh, who I often turn to when preparing a talk, said that the story of the fig tree was the hardest story of all in the Gospels. Well, I think that's a bit of an exaggeration, but I know what he's driving at. And I'm sure that some of you gardeners here are feeling sorry for that poor poor fig tree. So, in the next few minutes, let's reflect on them. And a very good way, of course, to approach Bible stories is, first of all, to be clear about the events and the details and the context. Then to explore what it would have meant at the time. And thirdly, to reflect on what it might mean for us today. So let's start with those two incidents and put some more, as it were, life and detail on them. So it's the day after Jesus' triumphant ride into Jerusalem when the crowds cheered him loud and long. That's actually what we'll be remembering next Sunday, so we're a bit back to front, but never mind, we can cope with that. Mark tells us that Jesus approached Jerusalem via Bethany and Bethphage, Bethany is where he'll be spending the next few days, probably at the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. You remember them. To get from Bethany to Jerusalem, they go through Bethphage, whose name means house of unripe figs. So maybe that started Jesus' mind worrying when he went through that village. Then, of course, there's the donkey ride into Jerusalem, um, which is Palm Sunday, not for today. After, though, he has dismounted from his donkey, Jesus visits the temple. Presumably, he's managed to leave all those great crowds that cheered him in. Maybe he got lost in the many, many thousands that would have been um, in the temple in Jerusalem that day. At the time of Passover, the population went from about 50,000 to nearly a quarter of a million. Jesus knows the streets well. He knows the temple well. He's been visited since he was at least 12 years old. And when he goes into the temple, what he sees disturbs and disgusts him. The blatant commercialism, the exploitation is all too evident. 
Instead of the sound of prayer, all that can be heard is the voice of the market traders. But he does nothing on that day. The disciples return to Bethany, presumably with Jesus deep in thought and prayer. And at some point he must have decided, I'm going back there tomorrow and I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to do something dramatic. He also knows that these are to be his last few days. He, he may have thought he might have been arrested tomorrow, I don't know, the next day. So I guess that he is in serious and somber mood. What he has seen has reminded him of the words of the prophet Jeremiah and the other prophets. Jeremiah was there at the very last days of Jerusalem. Jeremiah witnessed the temple built by Solomon being destroyed by the Babylonians and predicted it. Jesus, who knew the Old Testament probably off by heart, would have turned his mind to those passages. He knew full well that Jeremiah was told to go and stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim a hard message of judgment. We heard part of it in the reading. Reform your ways and your actions. Do not trust in deceptive words saying, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord will always be safe. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, and then come and stand before me in this house and say we are safe? Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers? The very phrase that Jesus uses when he uh, speaks to those market traders. And that's because that's what he's seen in what is the third temple, a den of robbers, not a house of prayer. So on that following morning, Jesus and the disciples make the journey back to Jerusalem. This time there are no cheering crowds. That's when we come to the first incident. Maybe it was an early start and they've had no breakfast, for it simply, Mark simply tells us Jesus was hungry. And there in the distance, he spots a fig tree, already in full leaf, with a promise of early figs. But when he gets there, he's disappointed to find there are none that can be eaten. So he speaks that word of rebuke, may uh, no one ever eat from you again. And the next day when they pass, it has indeed withered. And commentators see this incident as both a miracle, but also a parable. And it's the parable part of it that we're reflecting on. So after that, he carries on again to the temple, bracing himself for what he knows he will find there and what he is going to do but not knowing what the reaction will be. When he gets to that huge temple reconstructed by Herod, its many outer courtyards and houses and offices, he lays into the money changers who make the foreigners change their foreign currency into shekels because that's what they had to do to pay the temple tax, but they charge them exorbitant currency exchange rates. He upends their tables. Then he overturns the benches of those who saw sell doves to the poor, again at exorbitant prices. Everyone's in shock. He is not at that point arrested by the authorities or the merchants. For the moment, they're restrained. And Jesus is left to teach and preach, healing those who are brought to him. Interestingly, this is a bit of an aside now, he did not heal the lame man who had sat at one of the gates of the temple, the one known as Beautiful, for many years, 
Jesus must have passed that man a good few times, you know. That man had to wait a few more weeks before his miraculous healing through Peter and John. But that's another story. So here we have these two incidents coming close together, showing a side of Jesus that we don't hear very much in the church today. Here he is shown not as gentle Jesus, meek and mild, loving everybody, welcoming everybody, but a stern judge. Not a quiet lamb, but a roaring lion. Not one who is silent before Pilate, but one who shouts in anger and condemnation at those who abuse the holy place and more importantly, abuse and cheat others. Even the fig tree, because it bore no fruit, is condemned. So what would it meant at the time, as those disciples reflected on it at the time, the weeks after the resurrection, Jesus' ascension? Well, they would have reflected that it pointed to the judgment that fell and was to fall on the nation of Israel. The good fruit that they should have been bearing was non-existent. Instead, there was either barrenness or a bad-tasting kind of fruit. For the Jews, figs were a sign of God's blessing and a metaphor for their spiritual state. So the prophet Micah says, What misery is mine! I am like one who gathers summer fruit at the gleaning of the vineyard. There is no cluster of grapes to eat, none of the early figs that I crave. The faithful have been swept from the land. Not one upright person remains. Everyone lies in wait to shed blood. Hands are skilled in doing evil. The ruler demands gifts. The judge accepts bribes. The powerful dictate what they desire. They all conspire together. Those could have been words spoken by Jesus. Again, he may have been thinking of the words of Micah when he went back to the temple. And the tree, which showed such promise because of its full foliage, but which had no early figs, was a sign of the lack of true religion. The lack of grapes and figs was a sign of the spiritual and moral death that pertained them and which Jesus witnessed on this day. True religion, Jeremiah said, was taking care of the foreigner, not exploiting them, taking care of the fatherless and the widow. Instead of all that, money, power, corruption, exploitation and false religion had displaced true religion. So when Jesus spoke the words of rebuke to the tree, he was anticipating what would happen to Jerusalem and in particular the temple in about 40 years, it would lie smouldering and in ruins, the bodies of hundreds scattered through it following the Roman onslaught. So what does that mean for us? How can we take that story which reflects the nation of Israel, that temple now destroyed, what does that mean for us? Well, of course, whenever we talk about the people of Israel, We think of them as a picture of the church. Whenever we think about individual Jews in the Old Testament or in Jesus' day, we think of them as a picture of ourselves. So the obvious question for us is, are we in any way like that fig tree? 
Are we in any way like those in the temple? It's easy to answer yes to those questions for other churches, whole denominations, and for many Christians. Down, down the centuries, alongside many wonderful examples of Christians, there have been also terrible examples set by churches and clergy and bishops and archbishops and popes and those with powerful positions in society. And sadly, even today, there are churches and Christians around the world that do no honor to the name of Jesus through their actions, through their attitudes, through their words. Some of them are very easy to spot, but others not so easy. And that's why we need to examine ourselves. What was the sin of that fruit, that fig tree? Its sin was that it was fruitless. There it stood, covered in leaves, large, dark, green leaves, holding out the promise of good fruit. But when you got up close and looked carefully at it, there was no good fruit to be had. You remember that Jesus criticized the Pharisees for dressing wonderfully with their tassels and phylacteries, whatever they are, but in fact they were whitewashed sepulchres. Of course, as Christians, we know that our salvation and our hope comes from faith by grace in Jesus Christ. But the proof that that faith is sincere and grounded in God is the fruit we show in our lives. And what's the purpose of fruit in general? Well, it's there to provide nourishment and goodness and pleasure to those who taste it. So likewise, the outworking of our faith should be the nourishment and the blessing and the pleasure of those around us. A few days after this incident, Jesus is sharing in the Last Supper and he talks to them about bearing fruit. This time he uses the example of the vine. God, he says, cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. If, I, if you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. It will be a sign that you and I are together. In Colossians, Paul prays that they may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God. St. James says, the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit. One more, but there are many more in the New Testament uh, examples of this fruit. The one that you know best, the fruit of the Spirit, is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Nearly all of those qualities only exist in relationship to other people, don't they? Kindness only exists in relationship to somebody else. Gentleness, self-control. If these things are non-existent in our lives or in short supply, tiny little figs, then we have to ask ourselves, is my religion outward show or does it go deep into my life. You will have noticed this has been a sermon devoid of jokes. 
which you may regret, and uh, I don't even have one to finish with. But I felt for once that in this season, we are to examine ourselves carefully. And as we walk the days leading to Calvary, and then the empty tomb, let us be sure that we are not like the fickle crowd, but those who want to walk with and live for the Master. Bearing fruit. I'm going to end with some words from a favorite preacher of mine. I've often quoted him in my talks, C.H. Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher of the 19th century, who I'm sure will be absolutely horrified at what evangelical Christians do and say today, but never mind. In a sermon on this passage, he says this, and his words hold good for today. I like his opening, this bit here. The first Adam, he says, came to the fig tree for leaves. But the second Adam, Jesus, looks for figs. He searches our character through and through to see whether there is any real faith, any true love, any living hope, any joy which is the fruit of the Spirit, any patience, any self-denial, any fervor in prayer, any walking with God, any indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And if he does not see these things, he's not satisfied with chapel-going, church-going, prayer meetings, communions, sermons, Bible readings. For all these may be no more than leafage. If our Lord does not see the fruit of the Spirit upon us, he is not satisfied with us, and his inspection will lead to severe measures. May it not be said of us that either as a church or as an individual, we are all show and no substance, all leaf and no fruit, talking the walk but not walking it.